0: This is Bloomberg Law
1: with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week, the Supreme Court justices grapple with the question of whether a man serving a life sentence for his role on an international kill team should get a new trial because the confession of a co-defendant implicated him in the crime. Adam Samia was tried with two other men for killing a real estate broker in the Philippines. One of his co-defendants had confessed to the crime, and prosecutors used that confession at trial, with Samia's name redacted and replaced by the words someone and the other person. Samia argued that violated his right to confront witnesses testifying against him. But the conservative justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, appeared skeptical about that.
3: Maybe they will wonder, well, why are they saying another person if it was this guy? Um, uh, and it must be because it's somebody else that they don't, uh, you know, haven't uh, uh, brought, brought to trial.
2: The liberal justices like Elena Kagan seem more accepting of Samia's arguments. It's just as good to say the woman and I went out and robbed Bill as it is to say, Mary, the person sitting on my left, went out and robbed Bill in that in that case, right? It does the same thing. It identifies the person. Joining me is former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington. George, tell us about the issue here.
3: The legal issue in this case is the admissibility of a co-conspirator statement that criminates both the defendant who made the statement and his co-conspirator, in this case, Sammy. the of- when they go to trial against two individuals and they try to offer this statement against the non-testifying defendant, it's not admissible because it's a hearsay statement is not being offered against the person who made it, Mr. Stillwell, being offered against the co-defendant So the law is clear, and has always been clear, that that statement is not admissible. And in the original case, Bruton Bruton objected, and the judge said, that's fine. I will instruct the jury that it cannot be used against Mr. Bruton. It's only offered against the co-defendant who made the admission. And, of course, in Bruton, Bruton objected and said, Your Honor, the jury can hardly disregard that evidence, even though they're instructed to do so. So the Supreme Court said, that's right. There are limited powers of the jury to disregard highly probative highly incriminating evidence. So that's now called Bruton Error. And when the government wants to introduce that statement, they either have to separate the trial, have a separate trial for that defendant, or they have to not offer that statement against the defendant. So in this case, very similar situation. Two people committed the crime. This was a shooting in the Philippines, murdered an individual. There were two people in the car and still, well confessed. And they, of course, offered that confession against both individuals. But what they did was they redacted, they cleaned up the confession. So the person who testified, the law enforcement officer said, well, Stillwell admitted to the crime, and he admitted that he was in the car with another person, not identified. And of course, the issue in this case is the defendant, Sammy, saying, really? The jury will immediately know who that other person is by the context of the evidence presented and hence, it's a Bruton error because you're offering an out-of-court statement against me. And it's a what we call a confrontation clause issue. This is the Sixth Amendment allows you the right to confront and cross-examine your accusers. You can't do it when it's an out-of-court statement. So the issue before the court is, is this fall within the purview of Bruton or is it an acceptable correction? That doesn't harm the defendant's chance and doesn't violate his Sixth Amendment right of confrontation. That will be the issue with the Supreme Court decides.
2: So it seemed like some of the conservative justices, like the chief justice, said, well, you know, you can't really tell and is not re- necessarily referring to the defendant. But then you had some of the liberal justices like Elena Kagan saying, come on, obviously you're going to know who it is, the person sitting next to you.
3: That explains it. It makes sense. But the conservative justices who think that A reference to another person, unnamed, will not immediately lead the jury to the defendant is ridiculous. In that case, from the context, there are only two people in the car. They're going to figure out who was in the car, and they're going to connect the dots, and then they will disregard the instruction that the evidence is only offered against Mr. Stillwell, the defendant who made the statement. So it really is a reality test, and I predict that the court will find that this is brutal error. You know, the choice the really prosecutors have to make is, do they want to try the two together? Sometimes they can sever the cases. Or do you not want to offer the confession? Or you need to change the confession so there isn't a reference to the other person in the car. In this case, Samia, the person that they wound up convicting, was the shooter. So the question is, you know, context and interpretation. And this is a, an interesting issue. But my prediction is that they will find that it's a brutal error. should be.
2: Justice Amy Coney Barrett and some of the other conservatives seemed concerned about having to sever the trials. So it seems to me at the end of the day, it boils down to you just can't try two defendants together if you have a non-testifying defendant in a confession. So they seem rather reluctant about severing trials.
3: That's a very good point. And that's a traditional reaction of the courts. They want to optimize judicial economy. They want to have one trial rather than force the court to do two trials. And most trial judges are the same. They're very reluctant to grant a severance motion, which really would be the motion you make. But in the face of that, you still have to say the constitutional rights of the defendant against whom this statement is really effectively going to cause prejudice, even though the jury is instructed not to hold it against him, I think is paramount because it's his constitutional rights. And frankly, the government has to make a choice. They can either have two trials or they can not offer that statement in the evidence. Either way, the government says more harm, and that's what the court likes to do. It's we'll to balance judicial economy against the rights of the defendant.
2: Pennsylvania led 32 states in an amicus brief, urging the court to uphold the use of the confession, noting that thousands of trials in the past 10 years have involved multiple defendants and confessions, and a ruling for Samia would lead to retrials and cause prosecutors to try defendants separately. What's your take on that argument? Hard to know how much
3: credibility to attach to that argument because obviously it does occur, and obviously it imposes a cost limitation on prosecutors. But I don't really think that it's that substantial. This Bruton rule and so-called Bruton error has been around a long time, and frankly, most judges don't allow the confession and sanitizing it in the way that they did by referring to "quote the other person" when the context makes it clear who that is is simply a violation of that person's constitutional right, in my view.
2: Justice Gorsuch brought up something that I thought was interesting. He said that in other instances, we do give juries limiting instructions, such as only consider this non-Mirandized confession for impeachment purposes. So basically, why can't we trust the jury in this case with a co-defendant's confession?
3: It's an interesting argument, and it's, one of the problems with having justices on the Supreme Court who are not have never been trial lawyers or trial <laughs> judges, because people who have courtroom experience know perfectly well that jurors have a hard time following those instructions when they hear this incredibly damning evidence and they figure out, from the context, who it refers to. You can tell the jurors whatever you want, but the practicality is it causes prejudice to that person and deprives them, one would argue, a constitutional right, which is to confront your accusers. It's the confrontational clause issue. And the jury instructions, that was what was the holding of Bruton. The curative instructions don't always work, and that's reality.
2: George, does this come up often where you have a co-defendant's confession that implicates another defendant introduced at trial?
3: Very frequently, because now we like to have multiple defendant cases and it's very common that one or more of the defendants will confess. And when they confess, they tell all and they identify all the participants. That evidence is highly incriminating with respect to the non-testifying defendant. So it's a common situation. There are various solutions. In some cases, a judge will hold one trial but impanel two juries. And the one jury will hear that tainted confession and the, the other jury will not. So there are measures that the courts can take that I think strikes the right balance between the defendant's constitutional rights and judicial efficiency.
2: I appreciate the insights of an experienced trial lawyer, George. Thanks so much. That's former federal prosecutor George Newhouse of Richards Carrington.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank, because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: A
2: landmark trial is kicking off in Minnesota, the first time one of the thousands of cases against e-cigarette maker Juul is going to play out in a courtroom. Minnesota accuses Juul and Altria of hooking a generation of young people on their products by deception and slick advertising, and the state wants the companies to pay up for the public costs of addressing an uptick in youth vaping and smoking. Joining me is healthcare attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Harry, Minnesota is using the theory of public nuisance, a theory that was used against the tobacco industry in the 1990s. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, so a public nuisance legal theory, it was a theory that actually grew out of cases where there had been some kind of public harm, like damage to, you know, water sources and from pollution and things like that. And the idea was that Essentially, you could hold private parties responsible for the social cost, the cost that they impose on society. So we've been seeing through the opioid cases of the last few years, the attempt to extend that theory against drug makers and pharmacies that allowed easy access. And the state of Minnesota is trying to do the same thing here, essentially to say that Juul, you know, the e-cigarette company, that Altria, the, the biggest of the tobacco companies, essentially caused great harm to the public by encouraging the sale of these e-cigarette flavors to teenagers and to underage consumers.
2: Do you think that the public nuisance theory is a good fit for what it's accusing Juul of?
1: I think it is a little bit of a stretch, personally. I think that this issue of underage consumers smoking or engaging in unhealthy behaviors is A more complicated problem. It's not a clean fit to me that Juul was the entire problem. I think there's a broader question about our consumer culture that made this product so explosively popular with kids. So while I do think that the marketing practices were reprehensible, I'm not sure that it's a clear line to say that they were the cause of all these problems. I also think it's unclear. We won't know for years what the long-term health effects will be of kids starting to smoke, you know, in in eighth grade. And certainly there's been an issue of teenagers, of older teenagers, 10th graders, 11th graders, smoking that predate e-cigarettes.
2: Minnesota says in in papers that in the 14 years between 2000 and 2014, Minnesota high schoolers smoking at least one cigarette in the last 30 days dropped from 32.4 percent down to 10.6 percent. Six years later, 19.3 percent of high schoolers reported having vaped at least once in the last 30 days does that make their case about public health or do they need to do much more
1: i think that's a helpful fact to them i just don't know the whole story i think the reality is like vaping in general has become a more socially acceptable and more popular alternative to smoking so even as we've seen a decline in general rates of cigarette smoking you know, with greater awareness that vaping is, is a slightly healthier choice of an overall very unhealthy activity, you know, it's increased. So I think it's helpful. I just don't know. I don't think it's a slam dunk.
2: Juul and Altria are trying to shift the blame to the state of Minnesota. Minnesota got billions of dollars from tobacco settlements over the last decade but spent less than 1% on prevention efforts, instead using the funds to bankroll unrelated products like the Minnesota Vikings football stadium.
1: This is a really interesting argument. If you go back to 1998, the various states won something like $205, 206000000000 billion. I think the state of Minnesota alone got over $6 billion in the tobacco settlements with all the big tobacco companies, including the company that's now uh, Altria, right? That used to be Philip Morris. And so there was an like, enormous opportunity for not only Minnesota, but for all of the states to use that money to really create better public health programs, better education programs to reduce smoking and educate people about the dangers of smoking and intervene in trends like this. And I think that Jewel and Altria have a good case to make that not only Minnesota, but literally every state in the country basically wasted that opportunity. When we look at what they did with the money, they mostly plugged holes in state budgets, and just considered it sort of a slush fund to be used whenever there was a financial need. It's hard to find any examples, and Minnesota is no exception, of a state that really used the money comprehensively for effective public health related to the danger of smoking.
2: Do Altria and Juul have the same defense, or are they pointing fingers?
1: Juul is the main target here. Juul Labs is the company that developed this and marketed this, and they're a victim of their own success with all of the flavors that they came out with, Mango and other things that really appealed to kids. Altria has the misfortune of having been a major investor, I think something like 12 to $13 billion investment in Juul, but it, it's not, to me, at all clear why Altria is sitting side by side defending this case with Juul. Frankly, it looks like they are there because they are such a big player in the overall tobacco industry. And not because they were so singularly attached to this product. In fact, Altria has completely divested itself of its position in Juul, which I think was never more than a small minority percentage. Ironically, Altria has actually invested in a competing product, Enjoy, which is competing with Juul. And so it's not clear if their appearance here is more about optics and having, you know, the biggest tobacco company in the country so much as related to their actual activity in the state of Minnesota related to e
2: also for the deep pocket?
1: Yeah, no question. As a parent of children, I, I share the concern about the effective, dangerously effective marketing of e-cigarettes. But it does seem that Altria is at the table mostly, not only for their their, their size and visibility, but also for the potential resources that they can add to the pool of funds. So I, I agree with your comment about them being a deep pocket here.
2: As far as if the jury thinks the state has some responsibility here, is this a case where the jury can allocate damages?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the jury does have the ability to attribute comparative amounts and to assess responsibility. So, yeah, it's a tricky case for Altria because obviously the goal is to show that this is a bigger, more complex problem that isn't specifically tied to this, but also to try to minimize its share of any damages that are awarded.
2: So what's the question the jury will have to answer?
1: I mean, the, the question is really whether Juul engaged in deceptive marketing practices that targeted Minnesota youth. And so that's really the claim that's being made, essentially that there was some kind of fraudulent practice, you know, that, that there was actually intention to lull kids into taking up vaping in the marketing that they use, rather than this being a case of kids thing, marketing, you know, that was intended for adults, that in fact, the entire strategy of Juul was to hook a whole new generation of young kids on vaping.
2: Juul has faced thousands of lawsuits across the nation, but most have settled. And it's said that Minnesota had rejected settlement offers similar to those reached with other states, which provided, quote, hundreds of millions of dollars to further combat underage use and develop cessation programs in those states. So is this for the good of Minnesota or is this, you know, for making a name and making a statement about these products. I'm just trying to figure out why they wouldn't settle.
1: Yeah, it it definitely is an aggressive strategy here on the part of the state of Minnesota. It seems interesting that the state attorney general, Keith Ellison, is actually taking the lead in trying this case. He's certainly someone who has a colorful political history nationally. And I do think there's certainly a question of whether there's some grandstanding, you know, whether it's to create a name for him or just to make a statement by taking such an aggressive position on this case rather than following the path of other states and and pursuing a quicker settlement.
2: The state of Minnesota hasn't set a number for damages, but Ellison said that it could be in the ballpark with Minnesota's landmark $7.1 billion settlement with the tobacco industry in 1998. But wasn't that a bigger case, the case with the tobacco industry, and didn't it go back decades?
1: It's really... Hard to imagine how the problem of Juul could be taken as equivalent as the 1998 tobacco settlement, which was really addressing decades and decades of actually deceptive marketing where the tobacco industry knew how dangerous smoking was to American health and clearly did everything it could to block that information from coming out and to keep pushing a product that it knew was deadly. So the conduct here happened in a much shorter period of time. I don't think Juul even entered the market until 2016. And I think the main period we're focusing on is like 2016 to 2019. So it seems like this should be ultimately a drop in the bucket compared to the broader tobacco settlement. And again, it does to me raise questions why Attorney General Ellison is taking such an aggressive position here. Not to say that this isn't a problem, but to suggest that it's on par with the whole tobacco crisis seems a bit much.
2: If the state of Minnesota did win here, would it help? Other states to get leverage to reach settlements? I mean, how would it affect states outside of Minnesota or, you know, the general population outside of Minnesota?
1: I mean, I think if a jury is receptive and gives Minnesota, gives Attorney General Ellison a multi billion dollar or even a billion dollar settlement here, I think it will embolden other states and it will concern Juul and potentially Altria and sort of increase the numbers that are being paid out, which are already significant and in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So I do think that this case, in a sense, will either strengthen or weaken the assessments on both sides of what this case is worth and what this harm is worth and what it's going to take to settle these cases. So there is exposure here. If Minnesota wins this case, there's going to be more states that are willing to be more aggressive and push for more, which is going to be um, obviously bad for Jewel and Altria.
2: And if Minnesota loses the case, will will Juul and Altria be hesitant to settle these cases?
1: Again, I, to me, it's more like, I think of it a little bit like a stock, right? So if Minnesota loses this case, then the value of the claims that other states and jurisdictions could make against Jewel against Altria, will be a little bit lower. And Juul's already shown a desire to settle these cases. I just think it may be slightly more aggressive and settle for a little bit less. But at the end of the day, it seems to me that these companies have set aside huge reserves you know, to pay off claims here, not because they agree that there was any deceptive marketing, but simply because it's not a popular position to be defending marketing that clearly impacted kids and drove more kids to vaping. And these companies just need to do what they can to get rid of these cases as efficiently as they can. So I, I think this case is going to be significant one way or the other, it's going to make these cases around the country a little bit more valuable or a little bit less valuable.
2: Critics of the public nuisance theory say that it allows executive officers like state attorneys general to improperly step in and replace the role of administrative agencies and lawmakers, which should be the ones regulating the industry. Do you agree with that or disagree?
1: I mean, I'm not a fan of the expansion of public nuisance theory. I think that it played a very valuable role in America when it came to some of the terrible environmental harm that American industry imposed on different parts of the country, where we saw long term real environmental costs that were imposed, you know, when toxins were spread in particular parts of the country. I think these kind of social behavior oriented public nuisance cases, as in the case of opioids, and here, are really questionable. You can see why it's very exciting to states and to executive leaders, but I agree that the questions of the long-term harm and long-term responsibility are probably going to be addressed more accurately and with a little bit less passion and uncertainty in other places than putting them before juries. So I, I agree with that criticism.
2: The trial's expected to last three weeks, so we'll find out just how the public nuisance theory works here.
1: You know, this case makes me wonder what's the next issue that we're going to see where Americans engaging in dangerous, unhealthy behavior is going to lead to a public nuisance theory. Um, I'm still waiting for the sugar industry, you know, for the first public nuisance case involving uh-huh. food. I don't know where it's going to be, but I think this kind of reflects a trend in American society where, you know, on the one hand, it's good, to my, in my opinion, that we're, we're thinking about where the dangers to consumers are. You know, on the other hand, it's not always easy to get right exactly who's to blame.
2: Thanks, Harry. That's healthcare attorney Harry Nelson of Nelson Hardiman. Madison Square Garden Entertainment can ban lawyers suing the company from attending concerts and theatrical performances at its venues, even if they have valid tickets. That's according to a New York appeals court ruling. James Dolan, chairman of MSG, admitted that they use facial recognition technology to prevent lawyers suing them from attending events and explained why on Good Day New York in January.
4: But look at it this way, right? If you owned a bakery or a restaurant, right, the, the, uh, and, you know, someone comes in and buys bread from you, and then the next day they serve you with a lawsuit because they hated your bread, right? They said something happened to them, with etc., then the next day they show up at your bakery again. And they say I'd like to buy some more bread. Right?
2: Would you sell them the bread? The court did say MSG is liable to pay five hundred dollars every time it refuses access to a ticket holder. Joining me is Sid Rao, a partner at Romano Law. The appellate court reversed an injunction against MSG that a judge had issued. Tell us about that injunction.
5: There was an injunction granted to the plaintiffs, but it was extremely narrow. So the court's injunction did not prohibit Madison Square Garden, for example, from revoking tickets. It didn't prohibit Madison Square Garden from refusing to sell tickets to lawyers or law firms involved in, in litigations against the arena or against any of their affiliated parties. The only thing the injunction prevented was that the arena could not turn people away at the time of the event or a reasonable time before who had valid tickets. Let's say I'm the lead plaintiff, I'm partner at the firm, Larry Hutcher, and I have a ticket and I go to MSG on the day of the event and I present it. MSG is enjoined from turning me away. But that's it.
2: Tell us why a New York appeals court overturned the judge's preliminary injunction.
5: Ultimately, the issue that the decision turned on, the appeals decision, and the reason why the appellate court vacated the injunction was really just a careful statutory construction exercise. So Civil Rights Law Section 40b was the basis for the lower court's injunction, and that is the statute that prohibits venues from turning away holders of valid tickets essentially at the door. The problem for the plaintiffs is that the next section of the law, Section 41, prescribes a remedy for violation and it's a financial remedy and starting at $100 and going to $500. Now the argument in the lower court did address this. You know, the question really is is that the sole remedy? And the lower court was persuaded that even if the statute prescribes a remedy, if there was a chance of irreparable harm, the court still had power to intervene because of the possibility of irreparable harm. That's where the appellate court differed in its judgment. And actually, in in many other respects, the appellate court agrees and kept saying, you know, the motion court properly concluded. But in this one respect, the court said the only remedy for violation of the section of civil rights law is the monetary remedy. That is, the court interpreted the legislature's decision to provide a remedy as excluding other potential remedies. And what the appellate court was saying is, you can't get an injunction. Your damages for that violation are limited to five hundred dollars, and because that's a monetary remedy, there's no injunctive relief. So that's why they vacated the injunction, and that kind of leaves the plaintiffs. I think you know, in a lurch here. You know, a five hundred dollar penalty is probably not a strong enough disincentive for Madison Square Garden to reevaluate its policy.
2: Attorney General Letitia James is investigating this. The office said in a letter to MSG that the ban and the company's use of facial recognition technology to enforce it may violate anti-discrimination laws and may dissuade lawyers from taking on cases such as sexual harassment or job discrimination claims against the company. Quote, MSG Entertainment cannot fight their legal battles in their own arenas. So she could bring a case.
5: That's absolutely correct. And I love that quote. I think this is really getting to the heart of it, right? because we're, we're talking about statutory language and parsing technicalities. But the real issue here is that the facial recognition technology is fairly intrusive. There's this privacy and data concern around the facial recognition technology, especially in an era where there's technology available to parse large amounts of data. And then there's a public policy concern with what we think the real purpose is behind Madison Square Garden's policy is to disincentivize litigation or maybe to sort of punitively act towards lawyers who have the guts to sue. And that really is against public policy. Anytime you're dealing with a system that uses discretion, and we are here, the arena has discretion to turn people away, there's a possibility of discrimination. I think that that's a very legitimate concern that the attorney general's office is raising, which is you are creating policies that enable people to exercise a fairly large amount of discretion to turn patrons away. What's to say that that policy, which now applies to lawyers, won't apply to some other group in the future?
2: Thanks, Sid. That's Sid Rao of Romano Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.